Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Rights for Women. I'm just freshly back from a fantastic holiday in Fiji with my whole family, including my three daughters, two of their partners, and my little grandson, Jack, and we ha- and my husband, of course. We had an absolutely fantastic time. It was just a perfect break after all of the chaos with COVID and people just being locked up at home and separated. And, and it was just a really lovely time to be away with the family. We went to Malolo Island in Fiji, which is a place we've actually been to before with my daughters, but it was we worked at it was actually back in about 2009. So, of course, lots of change has changed since then, but fortunately the island itself hasn't changed very much and it's still a fantastic place to just go to and relax, do a bit of snorkeling, lots of reading, lots of eating and drinking, of course, and just chilling out with the family and having an all-round fabulous time. So I highly recommend if you haven't ever been to Fiji and you're ever after a tropical island holiday, Malolo Island Resort is fantastic and I would definitely recommend going there and I will certainly be going back again sometime. There is actually on the other side of the the mountain or the hill behind the resort we were at, there's a fabulous resort called Liku, which is adults only and has those gorgeous bungalows over the water with the glass floors where you can look down and see the fish swimming around. And the fish life there is absolutely glorious. There's some lovely coral too. Of course, some of it has been degraded, but there are some beautiful reefs, reefs to go snorkeling to. And yeah, anyway, if you're after a tropical holiday, Malolo Island is my bet for you, my choice. One thing I did manage to do when I was away was to get some reading in. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that just now, just before I get on to talking about today's guest. So I finished while I was away. I started and finished Cassie Hamer's The Truth About Faking It. And I have to say it was absolutely brilliant. I couldn't put it down. It's right up my reading aisle with, you know, three um, wonderful female protagonists all in the same family. So three generations of the one family, some really great voices. And I'm actually going to get Cassie onto the podcast very soon to talk about writing from different points of view and creating voice for your characters, because I think she absolutely nailed it in this novel. Some really interesting um, family relationship and plot events that drive the, the narrative in this novel, including a bit of a Me Too theme. I was right into that and yeah, I just I had to just keep reading. And of course, having a fantastic hammock to lie in and a banana lounge to lie on, on the beach certainly helped, but uh, I really enjoyed it. The Truth About Faking It by Cassie Hamer. Completely different, but also wonderful was The Winter Dress by Lauren Chater. It's set on Texel, an island off the Dutch coast, and it centers around a dress being found by on a shipwreck by divers and brought to the surface. And it's revealed that the dress came from around the, sometime in the 1600s. And the main character, Joe, is a textile historian. 
not a fashion curator, but a textile historian. And so there's some wonderful historical research, really meticulous research that Lauren has woven into this story. There's also the story of Joe, the protagonist who grew up on the island, but has left there with some very, you know, tragic memories and a past that she has to come to terms with, which she does on her return to the island when she's researching and and checking out the dress. And Lauren has also concocted a beautiful story around the potential owner of the dress that is is found. And I remember when um, talking to Lauren a number of years ago when she first had the spark for this story and read about this dress being brought up from the depths of the ocean and was just absolutely mesmerised the idea of And I love this, this about historical fiction that, you know, you can take a piece of history and then just create this whole fictional story and world and characters around it that may have truth in it. And, and certainly in this case, it does have quite a bit of truth in it because I know Lauren extensively researched this. But then also this idea that you can weave a magical story around it with amazing characters. And Lauren has done a beautiful job of that. So The Winter Dress by Lauren Chader. If you're into historical fiction and beautiful writing, it's definitely one I'd recommend. So something completely different that I also read while on holidays was a lovely collection of short stories by Valerie G. Miller called Everything in Between. It's a collection centred on family, love and loss, and it was really good to be able to just dip in and out of the book. Like it's short stories are fantastic for when you just want to read something short, you're having a cup of tea, you want to have a break midday, you want to read something before you go to bed. And Valerie's collection, Everything in Between, is a really lovely collection of stories. It's her debut, her first publication under her own publishing banner, Blushing Daisy Books. And Valerie, you may have heard her on the pod recently. She was on the Emerging Authors panel with Alicia Thompson and Holly Craig. And she's doing such a fantastic job of her social media and just putting herself out there, getting the writing done, and it's really inspiring to see. So everything in between is a fantastic short story collection by Valerie. I did manage a little bit of writing while I was away, not as much as I would have liked, but I did get some words down and I also had a lot of time to think about my current project and where I want to go with that in the next couple of months. I'll be getting stuck back into that on Monday. Today is... Saturday the 28th of May as I'm recording and it's as I said it's been great to have that break but I'm really looking forward to getting back into the writing back into the podcasting and teaching. So a couple of other things I wanted to mention before I get on to talking introducing my guest today and the first is that tomorrow I'm going to be going to an event for Cassie Hamer. Cassie's going to be talking about the truth about faking it at what's become an institution in the book world in Sydney, and, and I would even go so far as to say around Australia, because Anna's Shop Around the Corner has had guests from all over the country come, authors come and speak about their novels. And I want to give a shout out to Anna because Cassie's event tomorrow is going to be the very last event that is held at this particular site for Anna's bookshop, Anna's Shop Around the Corner. I first met Anna uh, a few years back now when I, I heard about her store and I saw that she was having these great author events where people were coming in and Anna sits herself in a chair and the, the guest sits opposite her and they just have this great old chinwag about the book and there's always a fantastic audience of readers there. And it's just become a real hub in Sydney for book events and 
Anna is just so generous in her support of authors. When I had my launch there for Cross My Heart in 2019, it was an amazing event and Anna just went out of her way to make it a really special day and I know that she's done that for many authors and that she's helped to promote so many authors. And just off the top of my head, people that I can think about who I've seen there speak about their books there, Penelope Janu, Rachel Johns, Ray Cairns, Jodie Fleming, Sasha Wosley, Joanna Nell, Kelly Rimmer, there's Danuka McKenzie, just so many people over the last few years and has been so generous in her support of all of us and of our writing and has been a really great resource for readers as well. She's also held a monthly book club there for the Wandering Women and I've spoken there as well about my, my books and I know a lot of authors have and I know that Anna, if you're listening, there's a lot of people who are very sad, writers and readers, who are very sad to see that unfortunately due to a new development going in, the shop at Cronulla is being closed down. Anna, I know that you are going to, we're going to see you again in another form, in another another site somewhere. And I just want to thank you for your amazing support, for your hospitality. And I know this is a very hard time for you and I just want to say keep smiling It's going to be hard to close those doors tomorrow, but I'm sure that there's going to be a fantastic new chapter for you and we're going to look forward to supporting you in that very soon. I also want to give a plug for the South Coast Writers Festival, which is happening next weekend, Friday 3rd of June to Sunday 5th of June in Wollongong. This is a new event and run by the South Coast Writers Centre, headed up by Sarah Nicholson and the team there. And it's going to be a weekend of readings, conversations, panels and book launches in venues across Wollongong Town Hall, Library and Art Gallery. And it's a great way to discover Australian writing by talented authors in the region on the South Coast and beyond. There's going to be so many fabulous authors there. Jane Caro, Scott Ludlam, Catherine Ray, Carolyn Baum, Hayley Scrivener, Danuka McKenzie, Helena Fox, Judy Morrison, Auntie Barbara Nicholson, Catherine Heyman. Robin Williams, Jackie Bailey, who I'm also going to have on the podcast very soon, and Meredith Jaffe. Meredith is going to be speaking to Jane Caro, but I'm also going to be doing an in-conversation with Meredith about her book, The Tricky Art of Forgiveness. That one is on Saturday at 10 a.m., June 4 at Wollongong Library, and I'd love to see some Rights for Women listeners there. So if you are there, please make sure that you come and say hello to Meredith and myself and stick around and definitely see what else is happening at the festival. I actually have two tickets to give away to another fantastic session that's on over the festival weekend. It's with journalist Carolyn Baum and she's chatting to Nadia Wheatley. I'm sure anybody who is a lover of Australian literature will know Nadia's name. She's had a career spanning 35 long years in writing and has published a number of award-winning works of fiction, history and biography. They're actually going to be discussing Charmian Clift, who was a writer and thinker ahead of her time. Nadia has written a biography of Clift and in this session with Carolyn, she's going to be discussing Charmian Clift's re-released essays in Sneaky Little Revolutions, Selected Essays of Charmian Clift and talk about this author's turbulent and fascinating life. So to be in the running to win two tickets to that particular session, which is on Saturday the 4th of June from 5 to 6.30pm at the Music Lounge at the, the South Coast Writers' Festival, 
just keep an eye on the Rights for Women's Socials over the next couple of days and you'll have the opportunity to enter a draw to win those two tickets. I'd love to see you there at the festival as I know the organisers would. The tickets are on sale now and you can check out the program at southcoastwriters.org festival. So now on to the intro for this week's guest. This interview is quite lengthy and there's a lot to take in, so I have decided to split it into two parts. It's a fabulous chat with Rebecca Saunders, who is the head of fiction at Hachette Australia. Rebecca started her career as a journalist and went into publishing in London, where she spent 15 years working at various publishers before coming back to Australia to take up the role as head of fiction here at Hachette. We chat in this interview about her publishing career, a typical day at the office, what it's like to be a very busy publisher, how an acquisitions meetings work, meeting works, the role of social media, author branding, so much more. And Rebecca is the publisher for so many really well-known and successful Australian authors, including Natasha Lester, Kelly Rimmer, Kate Nunn, Joanna Nell, the list goes on, Megan Albany, who was recently on the podcast. And it's it was just a really great chat with Rebecca, who is so generous with her information and her time in this podcast. So grab a cuppa. Sit back and settle in for part one of The Life of a Fiction Publisher with Rebecca Saunders. So, Rebecca Saunders, welcome to Rights for Women. Thanks, Pam. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been wanting to get a publisher on for a while to talk about so many different things and a lot of the episodes are with authors, but I also like to do episodes that feature different aspects of the business of publishing. So okay. it's going to be great to uh, have a chat with you and see the, the answers to some of these many questions that I have. So I hope I don't bore you too long with them. But oh. could you fill us in to start with on your sort of publishing career and, and how you came to be Head of Fiction at Hachette Australia? Okay, so I, I was a journalist in Australia for newspapers, newspaper journalists, and I just did, I did my cadetship and stayed for a couple of years. And then I was really, really curious. I was going to travel to London and I thought that's where like publishing is. I didn't know much about publishing in Australia. I didn't really know much about the industry or anything. I thought if surely like publishing would be London or New York. And so I was going to London to do the traveling thing. And yeah, I got my first job just off the boat at a publishing company there. And I was the personal assistant to the sales director. So basically my job was to organize parties. So I'd be going to all these venues and sampling. It'd be, this is the day when publishing, there were lots of parties, lots of launches, like champagne in the office and things like that. So I was, yeah, literally paid to go to like places like the Ritz and different museums and sample their food and everything and pick the venues and arrange um like our conferences and things like that. And then that went really well. And so we've handled like a few accounts, like library accounts on the sales side. But I very much wanted to be an editor, work in editorial. A couple of jobs popped up at Pan Macmillan in the UK and I applied for them, went for various interviews and was lucky enough to get a job as an editorial assistant. And that was working on the science fiction and fantasy list. I was setting up a new imprint called Tor UK, which is a really big um, imprint in the States. And that was that was setting up in the UK. I, that was one part of my job. And I also worked, I had another boss and worked on the nonfiction side and he was publishing quite serious journalistic and political memoir. So I had a range, I worked on various different projects. So it was really fascinating. And then I was, there was a gap with the, what the publishers were doing at Pam Macmillan. There was a gap for someone to look at younger 
women's fiction and I also started like assisting the publisher there who was publishing women's and contemporary fiction and then I found that I really loved that and published a couple of books which did well and then was poached by another company Little Brown where I went to work for eight years so I was I was at Hodder was my first job in publishing so I was there for a year and a half in sales then I was at Pam McMillan for I think it was about six years and then Little Brown for eight years and now Australia. Sorry, that's a very long-winded answer. No, it's really I've interesting been in Australia actually. For seven years. For seven years. So I was in the UK for 15 years in the end. So there were many job titles within that from being an editorial assistant and you're paid like £15,000 a year, which is nothing. And you're mm-hmm. like living in London. Um, so I had a job at night time as well. So I used to work for the Westminster City Council at night. So I'd go from the publishing job and then I'd jump on the tube and get the tube down to to Westminster and then I'd work I was doing the parking fines like writing back to people saying why or why they didn't have to pay their fines we did oh, that every really? day we did that the weekend to ends meet wow it's interesting to see all the different roles that you've had in the various publishing companies yeah it's really it was great standing off in sales because you realized how important it was to have everything like you have to have that cover you have to have all of this stuff for the sales team to be able to sell your book if you don't have a cover then you really don't have anything for buyers to to make their decision on and by that the retail buyers so yeah I started so I was like a PA and then I was an editorial assistant and that went to assistant editor that went to editor that went to senior editor editorial director then deputy publisher and all that was in London so there's yeah. much more um, I found that compared to Australia there's much more of a progression a career progression so there's all these steps along the way which you don't quite see as much because Australia is smaller it's, it's a little yeah. bit harder there are like fewer mm. jobs and you like you you're either like a project editor an editor and then you seem to kind of there's a few commissioning editor roles and it seems to jump right up to publisher I think that London was amazing for that and all the things that you learn along the way and eventually I just I loved my job at Little Brown and I was a deputy publisher of an imprint there called Sphere which was a really successful imprint and it was just that my mum was getting older and I'd been away for so long that I thought if I don't go now I won't go and I was single for the first time in a while and I've been thinking about it for years and then a job came up at Hachette Australia and it was as a publisher as the fiction publisher to start a new list and I thought that was a little bit too good to not really go for so yeah so that was seven years ago wow that's perfect the role was there for you ready and waiting <laughs> it feels like that it feels like yeah. that it feels I feel like I don't think pub, these publishing jobs don't come up very often so it's like if I don't go if I don't try and get this then it could be a few more years mm. before the right role I didn't want to do a job like less than what I was doing now yeah so I started and yeah it was there were a couple of authors on the list but it was very much the publishers then were working across like um people were publishing all different kind of things it was less like in the UK you specialize like you might specialize in women's fiction or you specialize in crime and thriller or reading group fiction okay. or literary fiction and how a story was set up at the time people like the publishers were publishing a little bit of everything and they wanted to get a structure in place where they had people specializing in different areas eventually they, they created their head head roles and um, the head of fiction there's a head of literary fiction a head of children's and a head of non-fiction mm. to, so people could really focus and dedicate their time to these and build a list and be responsible for that list and be responsible for the profits and the costs and everything rather than everyone feeding in and publishing lots of different things although Vanessa Radnich publishes non-fiction and she publishes literary fiction and a little bit of commercial fiction yeah she's yeah has a great track record so yeah that's how it came to be (laughs) 
Uh, so as head of fiction, like what would be a typical day for you? What would that look like if there is a typical uh, every, day? Okay, yeah, every day is, um, that's one of the great things about working in publishing because every day is completely different. I'm really obsessed with sales. So I tend to, one of the th- first things I like to do is like check overnight sales and I'd like to check the Apple Books and Amazon for authors that I've quite recently published and see how they're tracking, see what position that they're at, see how sales are looking through various channels. I like to do that. I find like, I'm a bit obsessed with doing that. I'm just seeing how everyone's going. And yeah, first of all, it's like checking emails. It might be emails from the US or the UK to reply to with the time differences. I share a lot of authors with the UK in particular, but it, I think nearly all of my authors now are published in the UK as well. So they might be having back and forth with them. And then yeah, on a Tuesday, we have our meetings. It's the big meeting day. So we have acquisition and cover meeting and we have a production meeting. And, yeah, there aren't too many meetings, actually, but there isn't. I think every publisher says this, but you don't really get an awful lot of time to edit during work hours because mm. there's so there's a lot more admin and a lot more other stuff preparing for things that you have to do than that people probably wouldn't expect that an editor does actually. It's you work as much quite a lot on the financial side as well uh, as the creative side and like the hands-on considering manuscripts. It's definitely done. If it's something that I'm if I think like the agent has pitched to me and I think it sounds really exciting, then I'll pretty much try and have a look straight away. That's and at least read five pages so I know or if it's right. something I'm like, oh okay, I'm not sh- quite sure about that concept. So I can maybe leave that for a few days. So it's just about heavily prioritizing everything actually and then if I'm getting cover concepts I'm expecting them from a designer that will also be one of the first things I look at because I don't want to hold them up so I want to give them feedback and be able to like move everything keep everything moving along so that we're making all these dates not missing any dates for selling and things like that yeah so yeah it different it depends like what the priority is for that week and what meetings you might have and and deadlines and so on but there's always editing to do it's always editing to do every week and manuscripts to to read cover concepts to look at or briefing covers or launching a book which is the first time people hear it well not the first one of the first times people hear about a book in-house and yeah I work here this is my office come in my little my son's playroom as well it's lovely working from home. I work yeah. from, so I was working in the Sydney office um, until I had a little boy three and a half years ago. So now I work from home and I find that I love that. And I find I'm really productive working from home because even before I do miss like the odd brainstorm that you would have like with people. The, if you meet someone in the corridor and you have an idea or something, I kind of miss that with colleagues. But I find with a lot of the work when you really do need to focus is great. I've just got my own little, mm. like my own little area here. So yeah, that's this little yeah, bubble. Yeah, my own little bubble. It's such a good job being a publisher because of that. You are doing something different every day, and you're not doing, you don't do the same things at the same time, which I liked. And I guess that's why I was attracted to journalism and why I my did a degree actually, a journalism, a business and communications degree because I wanted to be. I always wanted to be a journalist. And what I liked about journalism as well was that every day you didn't know who you were going to be going to interview. You could be, like, at one stage I was the court reporter, so you would go in and then you would just go all the different levels of the court and see what was happening that day and trace chase down a story. And I liked that. Or you were going to a different press conference and kind of like that. Not every day was the same. And it's definitely not the same in books because you're 
working with so many amazing people, like so many authors, and they'll have questions, you have discussions with them, and you're always brainstorming, you're trying to think of like titles or what a cover should look like. And you're always inspired and you're always thinking, which Mm. I really like. You're always, yeah, so every day is very, very different. Yeah, 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 no, that sounds amazing. And Rebecca, something I always have wondered is where do you get the time to read all the submissions that you must get? And, and as well as, like you say, you're doing the editing, so you're, re- you're reading over books that you've already accepted and things like that. Like you must be doing a lot of reading in your own time, are you? Yeah, I think before before I had my boy, I was in danger of working. I think I, w- I would work all weekend because right. it's a job that you really enjoy as well. Like you do, I love reading. And so it's hard. I felt it was like harder than to, to not work because there's always something you could do. There's always a manuscript you could read or there's always like something mm. you could edits that you could fine tune with now that like I'm responsible for someone I just like he's not going to let me (laughs) do (laughs) work all weekend so that's probably been quite good for me actually and I just try and uh, as I said with submissions I'll try and if it's something that I think like straight away it's the concept I'm going to be attracted to because I might know what I'm looking for or what the list doesn't have having said that something can completely come along that doesn't tick any of the boxes that you expected and you could love it but I'll try and quickly dip in and then it's not often that I'll read all of a manuscript so I can make up my mind quite quickly but if something has promised then I will go on to to read it all so I try and do yeah at night time I try and do I do everything on my phone actually so I do I look at manuscripts on the computer but then at night if I'm my little boy is watching tv I'll be next to him looking at manuscripts on my phone and I years ago if you had have told me I'd be looking at manuscripts and reading books on just a little iPhone I wouldn't have believed you but <laughs> I'm like saving paper. I used to print out religiously in London. Yeah. I would print out 50 pages of every single submission, take it home in my backpack. And so I'd have this backpack full of all. And now I'm just saving all that paper. And actually it's, yeah, I just, I was learning. So yeah, I thought that, yeah. no, that's how much you would have to read and everything to make a decision. And then you just learn along the way, learn things that make it easier and streamline. Yeah, no, that makes sense completely. Yeah. So what would be the main way or is there a main way uh, that you acquire new authors? I guess what are the different ways that you can come across new authors? I guess the most, the way where the majority, I don't know if I would say majority, because when I started the list from scratch, I was finding stuff all over and it wasn't, um, I had a lot of authors that didn't have an agent actually. But yeah, but so the I guess now most of my authors, a fair percentage of them have agents and then other people have come through the slush pile. So someone might have, the editors might have said, oh, this this person, they might not have read any, they might have said, oh, this was a great letter or something. Maybe you want to have a look at this or, and then I take pictures. So I've taken pictures, the Romantic Novelist Association, I've taken um, pictures at their various conferences in the past. And then the Australian Society of Authors and different events where people take pictures like I try and do and then I find that I do agree to see nearly all the pictures because people are so nervous that I feel like it's unfair yeah. to be like oh, I'm not really not that interested in that so I do find I will and try and I don't know try, give like some kind of feedback if I can usually you've just sent a few chapters but yes things are things have come to me before that have been recommended from a friend of a friend and I know some people might roll their eyes at that but you just never know you never know where it could come from yeah they're the main ways mm. so I think we've closed off our slush pile at the moment to give it a bit of a break so I think it was quite I don't know if it was COVID and there were more people writing or not or if yeah, it was just I think sort a lot of, more people were you know, writing during COVID yeah, <laughs> yeah. um yeah. and so I think there's a bit of a 
I think there's a they've, they've paused that to I don't I'm not entirely sure that the editors are accepting and you know consciously reading and looking through all of that at the moment but it'll only be like a temporary pause anyway and you mentioned before if you start reading something and the concept grabs you and you think oh I've got to keep reading but could you pick three perhaps top things that would make you then go on to buy a book what are you looking for when you're reading those submissions okay I the three things is boiled down to and this is taken they seem really obvious but it comes down to one do I want to keep reading two I'd recommend this book too I need to know oh I could say oh my sister or my friend you'll enjoy this book I need to know who I'd recommend it to and if I can't that worries me that worries me if I can't might be great, whatever, but it's imagine putting your, this into someone's hands and saying, you've got to read this book because. Um, so one, if I want to keep reading, two, if I know who to recommend it to. And then I think three, it does come down to the balance of the list as well. So if I have, if I'm, if I feel like I'm heavily weighted, like I'm publishing like too much, their crime and thriller or something, it won't necessarily be what I'm seeking. But then if something's amazing, it's really hard, you can try and think, oh, maybe I can publish that a year later, whatever. But but however, you'll be up against competition that can publish sooner and, and most people want to be published sooner. So I think, and the tying into that is the voice. I usually fall in love mm. with a voice. There'll just be something that will make in that voice that must resonate and make me want to turn the page and I just want to know what happens. And there, because at the end of the day, if you just want to keep reading, if you want to find out what happens, it also comes down to that. So you can try and make all the other stuff work and once I do acquire something before I before I take it to acquisition meetings I have a really good think about what I would title that book because I would say about 90-95% of books when they're submitted I would change the title so I need to know that I work out a plan for myself like what the title what would be like a really saleable title and how is the concept saleable or how am I going to pitch it or how do I make it saleable because I've got to then convince all the teams that this is something that we can sell, that kind of yeah, like you know, yeah. doing doing those first steps to really help them. And I also want to know what it might look like. And sometimes that takes a while. I'll look at what's selling in the market. How is this different or how is it similar or where I think there's a gap or it might just be inspired by lots of things like magazine ads or signs and things like that. But I think I clearly need to know where that's going to fit and who I feel like is going to enjoy that book or else I can't explain that to the team, then I, yeah, I think that's, that I might not be the right publisher for it because I think publishing is pretty safe as in we do follow. So I have to be able to show there's other books in that area that are selling well and this fits within that category but is doing something different or but what it, there's something fresh about it. And yeah, yeah. So it's one of the best in class. And yeah, it's harder to take there might be more like with literary fiction there might be a bit more freedom with something that can but I think because I'm publishing commercial fiction and then and book club fiction and some light literary fiction but I'm really ambitious about the books and they need to get on the list they need to sell a certain amount I have to feel that we can do that I know the channels and I know that how I package it like I need to get support from the three discount department stores it can't just be a book for the indie sector for what I'm doing because I'm really right. um, aiming for bestsellers, aiming to build someone from the ground up. So I, so I look at all those things that I think if someone, if I know 
if whatever I can see if someone has what it takes, I think. One of the biggest things for me, I love hard workers. I published two authors. I published Natasha Lester and Kelly Rimmer. Mm-hmm. Both of them are joy. And from their very first book, their sales have both just gone like that up every mm-hmm. book. And what I loved about both of them is I could see from the start that they were people, they worked so hard and I could see they were hard they were hard workers and they got it and they were ambitious for their books as well and they knew yeah. what they were writing and that to me is yeah a publisher's dream because you want someone that is going to work hard and is willing to do what it takes because there's so much involved and there's also luck is involved but there's a lot of hard work and a lot of things involved to get to that and to be increasing the copies that we get out there that we print um, every book and I always want to be growing I want to be growing I don't want someone's sales to be growing yeah knowing if an author is going to be a hard worker or that, they, and that they're ambitious for their own sales. I think I'm always like really impressed by that. They know what they're doing and they don't see themselves as, as different to what they are. Like there's some, yeah, yeah if that makes sense. I um, think Natasha and Kelly are great examples of that. As you say, their books have just gotten better and better. Like I've just finished Kelly's recent The German Wife and it's so good. I love all the books, it? but yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And they just get better per book as well. And it's mm. really that's yeah that's it's so wonderful to see that progression and like we're really working on their craft and building their audiences they're just both yeah. so wonderful at that people often don't come with I think that might be something that would be part of a question that you would have about in terms of when you're acquiring something and that social media or yeah I've got that on the list of questions <laughs> actually so how important is this do you actually look at an author's social media if you're considering publish them or I do um, look at all the platforms and see if they're on Twitter, although I find Twitter quite industry-facing. If there's someone that you respect on there and they're saying, like there are, there are a few other authors and if they're saying they really enjoyed something, I've come to learn that I like their taste and so then I might read that and then I might read their tweet and then go and buy that book. But it's quite industry-facing and I, I, I find and I think Instagram has become really popular and authors love that, being able to post nice, nice photos and the Facebook still remains the kind of most interactive. But, yeah, so we'll look at, see if they're on those channels. I, I have to say that apart from a couple of authors, though, they haven't, the, those followings have been quite small. So we've either tried to help or just slowly built that over the time. Like Joanna Nell is another one of my authors. And yeah. that was, like, very her and social media. And she's just amazing at it. She's just, like, amazing at it. She's yeah. grown her audience. And so wouldn't... It definitely wouldn't prohibit me from taking anyone seriously if they weren't on social. So we have a media, we have a social training course now. We can, I think we need to show authors the value of being on those channels because the author's got so much work to do with the writing and the and also with promotion. So the social is one more thing. And I think mm. you have to be able to show which channel will probably be best for them, what would suit their personality the most and that it's worth doing. And not, yeah, if you spread yourself too thin or you're trying, sort of trying to be something you're not, then it's not going to be the right fit. If someone came with this great social following and they had a newsletter, that would be amazing. But I think a lot of the time I'm I'll be buying first novels and that people aren't going to come with that. So yeah. I think on the nonfiction side that would be important, more important when there's a profile and all of those things. We definitely help authors to, to build that up if we think it will help rather than me just thinking that they need to come with that already because it's not realistic, I don't think. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned acquisitions meetings and you having to get all your ducks in a row before you go. 
So can you give us a little insight into what actually happens at an acquisitions meeting? Oh, okay. So for me now, so they're, they're online um, and everyone, they're done via Zoom. Now that everyone's returned to the office three days a week, they sit in a boardroom. And when you're a lot younger, that can be quite an intimidating setup because there's this big, this boardroom with a very long table and then you've got all the heads and the decision makers sitting around that and you have to sit there and pitch your book and you've already sent around the paperwork and you've already sent around the sample and you have to hope that people have read a little bit of the sample and liked that material and they'll often come and they've had conversations within their departments before. So they might have made their mind up before. So sales will have talked amongst themselves and even people that aren't present at their meeting, they will have got colleagues to read it. Publicity will have had a had a little conference before to do they what do they think the publicity potential is with this book and um, then marketing will have done the same how would they they have any ideas about marketing it yeah about a week before or a few or a few days before you fill out a very complete form and you have to give you like 60 second dinner pitch so it's just like a sentence or two about the reader how old they might be what other things they might watch what other books they enjoy reading okay and then you'll then on that form, there is a thing about their social figures, putting in their figure, are they on social? Do they have a newsletter? And then you've got to estimate their quantity you think you could sell through each channel. So I'll have to put down how many I think we can sell on Big W, Target, Kmart. Wow. Dimix, Indies. And then it's guess it's the salespeople's job to slash that and be like, well, no, right. we can actually. So I always try and be very realistic. And if anything, because I think I don't want those numbers changing I've worked out yeah I want to be like realistic I think for everyone for the author and for the sales team so they're not going in already thinking oh this is going to be hard and then yeah you write the publicity potential and the sales potential and on that formula how you might envisage the cover and the pub date for that where you might have the gap on the list and the prices of it and then that'll Mm. all be discussed you pitch that verbally you pitch that and then the sales team will give their opinion on and it's like a verdict isn't it it's like you're going in yeah. presenting the evidence and then you're um, waiting for the verdict and hopefully I like to do a lot of the times if I'm sort of in an auction situation it all happens outside the meeting I can't wait because we are meetings are fortnightly sometimes okay. they're weekly and it seems sometimes it seems such a long time and if something's moving quickly there's no way I'm going to wait the fortnight I'd rather mm. I will share that with people like the head of marketing the head of publicity head of sales and all the the different account managers actually and then people in the company who I think might like that book and try and get that excitement try and get people as excited as I am and reading it because at the end of the day if people are saying oh yeah this book is wonderful and everything that's what you want and that's going to help spur on the sales team as well so I'll try and do that yeah as soon as something as soon as I love something I don't want to wait till that meeting it all comes down to just this five ten minute discussion about yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. and I want to be sure I'm not really taking anything to a meeting unless I know that I can get it through unless I already know there's I have that support so that's what I try and do before and have thought of every angle that the sales team might think of as well Mm. so you're doing a lot of work really in, in preparation for those meetings aren't you yeah you want to if you're serious enough about wanting to acquire something I think you just have to have thought through what and thought about the future as well not just that one book is it going to be two books is this or is it a one-off or you know is it more of like a punt like something that's a little bit left field and we just published this book we don't really know what the author's going to do next but I want to have had those conversations and see do they see themselves writing something 
similar next time because if it's a, like a two-book contract is really appealing like to me and to a publisher because you're going to put all this work into the first book and really invest in all these things and all these campaigns and so you want to get to a certain level and then you want to grow on that. Um, so not many authors, despite what the newspapers might tell you, not many authors have come out of the gate and are massive bestsellers. It takes yeah. years of growing and growing. And the reason why those ones are in the newspapers is because it is exceptional and, and quite rare. There'll be probably a couple a year. Um, thinking of like Trent Dalton and Pitt Williams being the most recent ones and then Jane Harper quite a few years ago. But mostly it's on the whole, it does take book after book, having yeah, a book, building. publishing, same mm. time, hopefully publishing same time every year and building that readership and then finding the readers for that book and then continuing to grow on that and knowing the channels that book will sell through. I, I like the idea of the long terms. It's not just one book and then you're starting again, you're already thinking of the future from that very first books I think that's in everyone's interest there's yeah, like, security yeah. for the author as well so. and what about are you in consultation with book sellers at that time before you go into acquisitions and things are you getting information from booksellers as to what what they think of the concept or is that does that no, come later not really the sales team might have heard from some of their booksellers or oh, we're doing like particularly well with this book but no before COVID we were doing like um trying to organize a few quite a few like morning teas to introduce an author to like the Dimmicks buying team for example right. Dimmicks buying team and George Street so they could meet them before selling meet the author and kind of get a feel for you know it's like one-on-one and like it's, it's nice for everyone it's nice for the authors to meet the buyers yeah. nice for them to see who's behind this behind this book but yeah there's not in the UK there used to be more like if you did it further down the track once you had a cover the call them the, the supermarket retailers like Tesco and Sainsbury's and Asda they would have more power over the cover for example, so okay. if they thought, okay, this is all great, but this cover isn't wonderful, they would be able to have a say and say, I think you need to work on this. But then that's risky because that cover might work for another retailer. So it's things like going for the Richard and Judy Book Club, they would have a bit of, um, and that's done through WH Smith, they would have a little bit of a say, just making sure that package is really going to work for them if they're going to pick that book. But in Australia, I've not had, I've not experienced that anyway. And in terms of submitting their authors, submitting their work for you to assess or to have a look at, how important do you think it is for people uh, to do things like a manuscript assessment or I've heard of quite a few authors now paying a professional editor to have the book edited before submitting to a publisher. Is that something that you're finding is a, a fairly common practice now or what would you say about that? So... Do you need a manuscript assessment or professional edit before submitting to a publisher? That's the last question I asked Rebecca, and if you want to hear the answer, you can tune in next week to Rights for Women for part two of The Life of a Publisher. She's given us such a great insight into the whole publishing industry and what life is like as, you know, a publisher. She's head of fiction at one of the big five. So in the second part of my chat with Rebecca, We find out uh, the answer to the last question, of course, and we're also going to be talking about who chooses the cover, whether the author has a say in that. Rebecca has already talked in part one about the whole importance of the title, and we also talk about author branding, what makes a best-selling novel, what is a best-selling novel here in Australia today in terms of numbers. We also touch on TikTok, and there's a whole lot of other things that we cover in part two. Thanks so much for tuning in to my chat today with Rebecca Saunders. I hope that you'll be back for next week for part two when we finish off the chat. 
and find out more about what it's like to be a publisher today in Australia and get some great insights. Thanks. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>